Here at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. everyone welcome to another episode of the Turing podcast this week we're joined by Omar Guerrero an economist and computational social scientist at the Alan Turing Institute and UCL Department of Economics his research focuses on economic behavior and institutions from an interdisciplinary angle and today we'll be chatting to him about policy priority inference a technology developed in collaboration with the United Nations Development Program Policy Priority Inference, or PPI for short, is intended to be used to optimise government policy to meet sustainable development goals. So, Omar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, uh, Ed, and thank you, Joe. Um, so, thanks so much for joining us today, Omar, to talk about your work. Um, before we chat about your own work, are you able to tell us in your own words what the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are and why they are important? Yes, uh, absolutely. So the the SDGs uh, are basically an international development agenda championed by the United Nations. And what it seeks is to attain certain level of commitment from all the member states of the UN in order to improve different aspects of uh, human uh, well-being. And uh, well, international agendas are not new, right? Before we had the Millennium Development Goals, for example, but there are, let's say, three things that distinguish the SDGs from other previous uh, initiatives. One would be, uh, obviously by its name, the fact that the, there are now environmental issues included in the goals. A second one would be that this is a global agenda, meaning that it's not only the global south that has to try to meet the goals, it's everyone, including developed nations. And the third one would be that it recognizes the complexity of development. So they talk a lot about interlinkages between the different dimensions of development. And that is quite new. Cool. That leads uh, very nicely to the, the second part of that question, which is um, how are these sustainable development goals and the progress towards them uh, measured? Um, apparently, there's 231 different uh, indicators, development indicators, they're called, which sounds like uh, a lot to keep track of. Can you tell us a bit about those development indicators? Yes, exactly. So uh, every dimension, uh, uh, it's tried to be measured through a development indicator. And these, you know, this practice comes from before the, the SDGs. Originally, you would have perhaps only economic indicators. And uh, as more type of topics were included, like human development and environmental topics, now we have more indicators being developed. Officially, the SDGs indeed tries to take into account 230-something, although they update the number every year. Um, however, different countries cannot take 
cannot keep track of all these indicators, right? So some countries might have more indicators, some might not have most of them. Um, and also there are uh, international organizations who try to build their own indicators as well. For example, the UN has an official database where it collects data from the different governments, from the member states, but then there is this other network called uh, the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, which has a different data set. The World Bank has also a bunch of indicators that they consider into the SDGs. And of course, governments within themselves, they have very unique indicators that are specific to their own problems. So everyone tries to track progress in each of these goals through these indicators. They could range from counting how much people live on their national poverty line to carbon emissions, for instance, and they tend to be generally aggregate variables. So it's an aggregate view uh, of the of the world and of the goals. Do, they, do those um, indicators and all the things that are measured specifically do are they standardized, or do you said you know does it vary from country to country and and um, yeah yeah the 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 ones for instance that the UN publishes uh, there are of course uh, efforts to standardize the data there are standards agreed by different international organizations for instance the international labor organizations has standards to measure informality and some countries might ad adhere to these standards others might not and then they might report their own uh, indicators of informality so uh, there are standards although countries uh, might or might not decide to follow them. And just um, so we're on the same page, I mean, what what might be some of the, like an example of, of an indicator measured for uh, progress on the Environment Sustainable Development Goal? What, what, what would be one of the main things you would go to to measure there? Well, the ones that are, they are typically reporting, they come for also from uh, international organizations and academic uh, institutions. So they would be the, the ones that you hear the most in the media, like uh, carbon emissions or carbon footprint uh, per capita in a country. You would also find the ones about fish stocks. Um, you can also find the one called the red index, which has to do with uh, the potential the extinction of, of certain species. Uh, also, you know, how much coverage of your territory is protected, uh, how much, uh, how many forests are protected as a proportion of your forests uh, as a country. So, yeah, that, those kind of indicators. And, uh, what we hope, obviously, in the future is that more indicators are incorporated more data yeah I, I i can definitely see how the yeah there's just so many possible things you could possibly uh measure just the number of things is infinite yeah. i guess now it would be really good if you could tell us a bit about the development of the policy priority inference tool um and i suppose how that kind of feeds into what we've just in just been talking about um but also the kind of overall goal of the project um and what the technology enables governments to do that perhaps they were not able yes, to do before. Um, so the the project uh, PPI really started uh, with my my collaborator uh, Gonzalo Castañeda, who is uh, an uh, an outstanding economist uh, from Mexico City. So both Gonzalo and I had some experience uh, consulting international organizations and governments, and uh, between our conversations, we we always found found interesting how many governments establish goals to achieve. Uh, throughout their term, 
this might be expressing through official documents, sometimes it's just public speech. And, uh, and then they supposedly establish policy priorities to reach those goals. And normally you would observe those priorities in terms of budgetary allocations. But then the gap moving from budget to indicators, the impact from increasing expenditure in certain issues and then observing the indicators, that was not straightforward. And from our experience, it's actually the case that many governments could be, can be quite discretionary in the way they allocate uh, their budgets. So we wanted to, to explore from the academic side, how could we connect those two things, the budget allocations and the indicators. Another challenge was that actually there is very little data on, on public spending that is linked to indicators. So you might have big amounts of public spending in big categories, but that's, that's as good as it gets generally. This is changing though. So we started to build a model, a computational model, where we would take, borrow theories from economics, from political science, from network science, to try to simulate a government spending, adapting its expenditure in phases of uncertainty. Uncertainty would come from inefficiencies, for example, of the different ministries in charge of improving these indicators. And eventually this model, this simulation, would replicate certain stylized facts from the indicators that you would observe in the real world. So with that, we could tell a story about we have some causal mechanisms that explain some of these indicators. And not only that, but we also try to take into account their interdependencies. So the model would take as an input a network of interconnectivity between these indicators. And um, so that's how it started. And in the beginning, we were only looking at social issues. So the UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, came across our first publications and, and told us, you know what, this is exactly what, what the UN is looking. This falls within the methodologies that we are trying to support. Can you actually extend this to also environmental topics? Because the issue with only looking at social uh, dimensions is that most of the interdependencies are positive. So there's positive spillovers. The moment we introduce environment, then we have trade-offs. So we did that, and uh, so we developed what now we call PPI, policy priority inference. And, uh, and what it has become is a tool that allows the government to take the indicators that they collect, give them to the simulation, and the simulation will match the simulated indicators with the real data. And once that, that is uh, kind of a calibrated model, then the government can run counterfactual simulations. For example, what would happen if I take resources away from this topic and instead uh, put more towards this other, towards environment? Will I accelerate the rate, the speed to which I reach my goals? Will I perhaps increase inefficiencies here and there or not, or become more efficient? Um, so it allows them to do all this count of counterfactual uh, exercises, uh, for instance, we could look at now with COVID, many countries are not going to be able to be spending at the same rate. So we can ask questions about resilience. What topics are still going to make it to their goals, given that they're not going to receive the same support as before? And all these questions are really difficult to handle uh, with traditional methodologies. But uh, so that's kind of our contribution. That's really interesting. And do you have any examples of governments that are using um, PPI? Um, 
already successfully or kind of are in the works of using it? So we're in the works currently uh, because, uh, you know, knowledge transfer uh, normally uh, takes uh, a few years, especially when working with governments because they are very conscious about uh, their political implications to certain uh, actions. So um, we are working with governments and also with NGOs. NGOs actually can adopt, adopt this uh, quicker because they are the ones that are usually evaluating governments. So, for example, uh, there are NGOs in Mexico with whom we are working that generate indicators uh, and a lot of data, and they generate annual reports to evaluate certain actions of governments, and they're interested in PPI because for they can use it to assess whether the goals that state X published in its development plan are realistic or not, or if the way they are spending according to recent expenditure data, is this coherent with these goals? Is this the best use of the resources or not? So we're moving fast with the international organizations, with governments. Uh, we are also working. Um, so yeah, that's more or less the the current state of adoption. My understanding then would be that um, whereas normally a government, say it had an agenda, um, and let's say that agenda was meeting the, the uh, you know, UN Sustainable Development Goals, in order to achieve that agenda, you know, the actual policies that they'd have to craft would be, you know, very difficult to to, to know exactly what to do. Whereas it's only with this kind of advanced computer modeling of the kind that you've done that people can try out or governments can try out um, in advance different policy agendas to uh, meet the goals that, the, that they want to meet or at least, you know, they can they can model how those uh, how those uh, policies will play out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially if you think of uh, of the indicators and the different dimensions of development as a, as a network in which each topic would be a node and then they are interconnected through these spillover effects. Then one thing is to be able to name, to enlist a bunch of dimensions and say, I'm going to prioritize these three. But another very different is to understand how if you promote certain issues, you're going to, through spillovers, promote others because just this network is is very, very complex. And if you look, for example, at any political campaign, they normally highlight three, four, five, six, up to ten big topics that will be prioritized. But then you have that agendas like the SDGs are asking you to look at 200, 300 right, right. Uh, topics. So yeah, you might have your priorities straight in the first 10, but then after that, it, it is not very clear how you go about it. So this tool can help also uh, in that you could, for example, condition a simulation on the public spending that you already want to commit to your top 10 issues and then make the other uh, 200 flexible and that you are open to explore how to better move the resources there. It is very flexible because of its computational nature and indeed it supports this kind of uh, decision making. Maybe this is a little bit of a tangent and perhaps this is not something that you yourself would decide but yeah just what you said you know in democratic countries, you, you've got to sell your policy agenda as a politician so you can get elected. And perhaps, I don't know, saying uh, we've got this fancy simulation and we've tried out a couple of different 
policy agendas and this is the one that comes out best you know there, there would, there's definitely still going to be a challenge to communicate that to the public i guess yeah uh i, I suppose although in some countries uh these things are being communicated through these uh, official documents uh for instance many countries in latin america by law the national or federal or state level governments have to publish the document where they specify the indicators that they will use to track their progress so they can be evaluated. And and to be honest, this is not only about democratic countries. You could also have a, a, a non-democratic state and its government still has goals in mind. They still are going to set their goals. They might be completely different to a, a democratic nation, but they have to spend money to get to those goals. And and here is an important distinction that actually the methodology does between two concepts that are typically confused in, in the community and, and even in some academic literature, which is goal and action. So often the actions, the expenditure are taken as the goals. What actually the expenditure is the result of a political process of how you negotiate the budget, etc. The action is something that we view more exogenous, is where you want to get, and that might come from a very different timescale and very different processes, for example, a social consensus, a political agreement between main, the main actors of society, or just the pure discretionarity of a non-democratic government. But the point is that everyone has goals, and you just the, the, the PPI is, is agnostic about the goals, so you just give them the goals, your data and then it does the rest okay well i, I mean i hope that they use it to uh <laughs> to achieve the sustainable <laughs> development goals because those those seem like good goals to have <laughs> um yeah. so the next question was sort of um yeah you, you, the policy decisions that um that ppi ends up recommending uh how how does it link the policy decisions that you make at um, what you call the quote-unquote micro level to outcomes in the wider economy that affect progress towards uh, the goals, which may be the sustainable development goals or or maybe, the, <laughs> as you said, the nefarious yeah. goals of an authoritarian regime, whichever, whichever it happens to be. So the, the model we try to do this, uh, that is difficult to do with just observing data. So if you look at data only of indicators, you're looking at a macro level a feature of, of a system, of a social system. And so you do when you look at budget. But there are vertical causal mechanisms, right? So you have a government which sets a budget, gives it, passes it on to a ministry. The ministry is going to enact some policies using some of that funding. Some other will be lost in inefficiencies. And then these policies have certain operational rules, whatever, and then then this eventually permeates and produces the, the change in the indicator. So this verticality is simulated through agent-based modeling, which is a fancy way just to call uh, uh, the technology using video games pretty much. So you have an agent that is a government simulation. You have also uh, agents that are represent the ministries. And then we obviously simplify some things. We don't have all the information of all the public administration procedures uh, that, that happen uh, in enacting public policies. But, um, but we have rather a distinction between two ways to think about uh, how you push those indicators. 
One is short-term actions that has to do with the budget. You spend more uh, in, in the policies that you already have, and then you're going to push your indicators forward with certain effectiveness. And then you have the long-term aspects, for example, the technology that you have, the infrastructure that you have, the organizational practices. Those are very difficult to observe. That's additional data that would be needed. So we take all that information as a free parameter that we try to adjust to tune in the model to explain the dynamics of indicators. So we have short-term and long-term. So the idea here is that the governments are going to connect their actions about expenditure all the way to the indicators by looking at the simulations. And for example, something that we have done lately is to look at, okay, so what happens if the budgets of these nations grow? Well, what you see is that because here we're considering the expenditure as, as short-term actions, it, it happens that you can improve, let's say you can short-term, uh, shorten the time it takes you to get to your goals up to a limit. If you don't face long-term aspects like developing technology or changing certain cultural uh, norms, then you're going to reach a limit in how you improve. So that's how we try to communicate this to governments on regarding their budgetary actions. I don't know if this more or less uh, uh, addresses the, your question. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of things at play here. And I think what you said about, um, you know, agent-based modeling, which basically means you know, modeling, this is what we expect a government to do. This is what we expect people within a government to do or administrators. Um, yeah, I think, I think, um, I think Joe, the next question on our list might be <laughs> feeds into this nicely. Yeah, it does. So, um, how does corruption and bad governance play into how well the sustainable development goals are realized? Would you say Omar? Um, and is and can you measure corruption? Is that something that there's a tangible, measurable output of? Yeah, so this is one of the critical aspects that uh, Gonzalo and I, as uh, coming from, from a country where corruption is a central discussion, uh, we, I'm also from Mexico, so um, it, it, had, it was something that we had to, to consider here. And we we frame it in, in, in a wider concept, which is inefficiencies. So, so in a simulation, you have this artificial government, which has a heuristic on how to prioritize the budget. Once the priorities are set for a step in the simulation, the money flows to the ministry or agent or whatever that agent represents. And there, this entity has to face of a trade-off between putting some of that budget towards the policy and then separating some part of it for a personal gain. Now, originally we viewed that as corruption, of course, because from our background we're used to see that, but this is a broader discussion of inefficiencies. For, for instance, you could be inefficient because you just sit down and you don't do anything. So you just simulate that you're working and you're hoping to get a more political uh, status in the future just by holding that position. Another way of doing inefficiencies would be you don't have uh, open or public tenders to hire a company to um, to implement a project or a policy. 
and instead you go with your friends and hire a company that probably was not the best. So you see, it, it doesn't matter the country, you will find inefficiencies. So this trade-off that these agents face uh, is a trade-off in which they have to decide how much they're going to put forward a policy. And that depends on their experience. So there is a behavioral model here in which they learn. And the learning comes from obviously the benefit from the private gain, but also the possibility of being spot and punished. And that's where public governance comes in. So what we do is, because corruption per se is difficult to measure other than through surveys, through perception of people, for us, uh, where metric of inefficiency is an endogenous variable in the model. So the model generates this level of inefficiencies. So it, it's an inference. And this, infer this variable is a response to the quality of two aspects of governance here is how frequently the government monitors and how effective are the, the penalties. So it's monitoring and the quality of the rule of law. And there is data about this across countries. So at least in relative terms, you can calibrate the model using indicators on the rule of law and monitoring. Right. So based on data you have on what the, the law actually is in a given country and how well it's enforced or how well things are monitored, you can then make certain assumptions about how inefficient and or corrupt uh, individuals within government um, are going to be in their decision-making process yes. and, and how that affects how likely they are to achieve their goals. Exactly. And, and something actually very interesting out of this is that you can get different types of societies in terms of these two parameters. So uh, perhaps uh, in, in the global north, uh, you don't see this much often. So you probably have a notion of okay, a corrupt country is, just corruption is everywhere, like the government doesn't supervise. But there is, let's say in the middle income countries, what you have is, you have a lot of supervision, uh, you have monitoring, because there is certain degree of freedom in the media to put these cases in the spotlight. And, uh, and sometimes there are consequences for, for, the, govern, for the governing class uh, if they are caught doing this. However, what you would find is that, okay, the government is monitoring, the media exposes a scandal, and then the government starts a, a judicial prosecution, and then the case falls through eventually. Right. The case, the lawyers are bad, uh, the evidence is collected according to, like, violating all the, the rules of the judicial process, and the case falls through, uh, and by the time that happens, the media stop covering this. So there is a simulation culture that we care about corruption, but the rule of law is not being uh, followed through. So you can get all these combinations of, of nations, you know, very honest in, in every sense, perhaps they don't care at all, perhaps there are these mixed regimes, and that's something very cool uh, uh, about the model. Interesting, yeah. Um, so do you, do you, would you describe that as, as a inefficiency due to bureaucracy rather than, in a, you know, pure corruption in the sense that it's intentional violation of the law and and and, and what and you said that it's a cool th thing in the models so how how did um how did you end up seeing that in the data from from how the model was used so for example if you would do a plot where you have a uh, the individual trajectories of how much each of these agents that are implementing policies are 
uh, let's say, wasting in inefficiencies. What you would observe, for example, in a country that is supervising a lot, but with very low punishments, what you have is that all these individual trajectories of all these agents start concentrating pretty much in high levels of inefficiency with frequent spikes uh, in the opposite direction, which means they're being punished. But on average, there is inefficiency. And the way to interpret this is that the rule of law or the punishments have become a price. Right, right. A price so, that the agents yeah. have to pay, and they're fine with that. And then the social norm, which there's also a component here about social norm. So let's say that the probability of being spotted is not in absolute terms of how much you are diverting, but it's also relative to how much my colleague bureaucrats or ministries are, are being inefficient. So if you stand out of the norm, more chances that you will be spotted. So there is also interdependency uh, between these agents in, in that sense. So the norm will settle at a high level of inefficiency, and that tells you that it's the price to pay. If you have, for example, a society in which you have not so frequent monitoring but very harsh punishments, what you will see is that all these trajectories of inefficiency will concentrate in low inefficiency levels, but you will have eventually agents that start exploring high levels of inefficiency. They start climbing right. up, going in the opposite direction, and suddenly the punishment comes and boom, and they bounce back to I see, uh, efficiency. Right. <laughs> Seeing what they can get away with, basically. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Um, so the next question is definitely very related to this. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about how um, people involved in government making decisions to achieve goals that the government wants to do, how how they act, essentially, modeling how they act. And what you said so far is talking about, yeah, whether it's um, they have an incentive to um, sort of do the right thing or whether they have an incentive to um, do something for personal gain instead of achieving the, uh, the actual government's goal. Um, but what... To what extent, if at all, do you are you relying on the assumption that these policymakers and politicians are rational actors? Um, you know, my my knowledge of psychology is limited, but <laughs> my understanding from life, as as well as from uh, pop psychology, is that humans are not entirely rational actors. Yes. So we actually depart from the rational approach. We are not. Uh... Uh, strong believers on that framework. So what we actually use is the the concept of learning. And in particular, we use a model that is called uh, directed learning. And this, this is basically a heuristic in which you shape your actions uh, according to your experience. And this stems from the idea that this is such a complex environment that if you would take a rational approach, that means that you would view the problem as a problem of risk. So you would be able to see all the outcomes of your actions and of their interdependency with the other agents. And therefore you could assign probabilities and then build an expectation. So that's the rationality approach. The, on, the um, uncertainty approach uses ad adaptation instead, which is you don't know what are the outcomes. So you're going to be adapting your actions according to your experience, to how you collect information. And this is exactly what directed learning does. And it's, um, it's a model that has been extensively validated uh, uh, both in, in labs and, and also uh, 
via simulation. Uh, so yeah, that was the, the way we decided to go with how our agents learn to be efficient or inefficient. Right. I mean, yeah, politicians are going to make decisions based on what they know and what they think. Um, yeah. Rather than, and there is the element as well of the social norm. Remember, so right. if the norm is is high in inefficiency, and I'm a politician, and I see that on a, it is well accepted to be inefficient, I I will just be close to the norm. Right. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That's where corruption itself becomes the norm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I remember it, this could be not necessarily corruption, right. but corruption, but in general, uh, inefficiency. Of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I suppose people's patterns of behavior, they're less likely to kind of break from that. They're more likely to kind of follow the status quo almost because it's easier. And if there is an element of, well, I don't know, corruption or, um, yeah, I suppose that's going to benefit them potentially in some way. Yeah, exactly. And it is actually, so it is this notion of stickiness, right? That behavior can be sticky. Um, and this, so something also interesting about this is that um, we try to incorporate this idea of the social norm to explain part of the inefficiencies or corruption from discussions coming from sociology. So if you look at the economics literature on, on corruption, what you would see is that first there is this idea of rationality, and then also the idea of if you want to, to, to curb corruption, what you have to do is reduce the space of opportunity. So you have these models that are called the principal agent model in which you have a principal, in our case, will be the central authority. And then you have the agents who are these bureaucrats and you want to align their incentives. So you're going to do that by monitoring and punishing. However, when you look at the data um, about international studies, when you see the experience, the individual experience of countries that have implemented recent reforms to the rule of law, you don't see much improvement. And, and this is a discussion that has been uh, driven in, in the World Bank and the IMF. Like why still, given all this theory and also evidence across countries that more developed countries or countries with better rule of law tend to be less corrupt, why do we don't see the same when we look inside the countries? instead of pulling countries together. So sociologists have been saying for a while that, well, that is because the rational agent is ignoring the social norms, the fact that you also follow the behavior of your colleagues. And this is exactly what we try to pull in. And we actually have a publication on this. So the, the, you're saying that the academics in the past, of, um, when they've made the assumption that people are rational agents, that's, that's ignoring the, the pull of social norms. Yeah. That was a criticism from sociology to to the economics of, of public governance. Right, right, of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in that way, we try to be also interdisciplinary in that sense, bringing both, because uh, it is indeed important, the part of punishing and monitoring, but we cannot ignore the social I mean, norms. Pre presumably, there's also, yeah, you say you put punishing and monitoring, but is there not also... Uh, uh, a carrot as well as a stick for for some of these things too. There could, of course, there could be, but then then we are reaching the point in which, as modelers, we have to stop incorporating new elements if we don't have data. <laughs> right. So a lot of right, the feedback okay. that we get, obviously, is uh, from public servants or NGOs. Is oh, can you include this item or these operational rules? And then we always come back. Do you have data on that? 
because then right is is it maybe easier to i don't know find data on the sort of punishments like people get fired as opposed to information on whether they get promoted for doing such a great job yes. in there yes because there are very well established surveys on perception people perception on on how uh truly in, well implemented is the rule of law for example or on how well they think they perceive corruption is being monitored that data exists but then going so so let's suppose governments have actually more detailed data then the tool can be actually uh, modified to 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 fit their particular needs, but for that, then we need to dive into the knowledge transfer and to build capacity in them to be able to incorporate these these issues. You got you got to have government insiders who know how to uh, do this advanced computational modeling who have access to the data so some governments have data uh, for example uh, i'm going to talk again about the, the case of mexico because in the past governments there was a big push for opening data internal data so they had they have published very detailed data on management indicators uh, so the federal government uh, established um a federal level system for evaluating the activity of all the dependencies of the government. So they require them to report indicators on very detailed things, even like a number of meetings to address this topic per month. Right, right, okay. There are like thousands, thousands of indicators on this. So that information exists, and I don't think Mexico is, is an outlier here. I think every country has this kind of info. Well, many countries have this kind of information. Uh, it's just that Sometimes it's not public, but I think governments can take great advantage of the tool uh, with the information that they have. I mean, as speaking as a as a someone who works as a data scientist, I think part part of the problem may be, and this is a problem we have in the UK. So I don't know. It, I'd imagine it also applies to many other countries, including Mexico. But you might have some government data that's available, yeah, publicly, but it's in a difficult to uh, you know extracts excel spreadsheet on a website that's updated at an odd interval or something like that you know <laughs> yes there's that to consider as well <laughs> yeah this is um so it depends who the end user is exactly so uh something that we are developing is um, a way to advise users on how to standardize the indicators that they get, how to impute perhaps missing values and things like that. Then in terms of access to the data, well, obviously a government agent is in a more privileged, privileged position to, to get to this data. But I would say that if the end user wants, for example, to address questions about the SDGs, then there is plenty of data out there to start. And perhaps once they have some initial simulations, some insights, then they can approach data providers and show the potential of the tool. So let me give you a, a better example here. There is a, I mean, a trend currently on governments publishing spending expenditure data. And this can be different level of aggregation, so big categories of expenditure all the way down to very specific expenditure programs. And this agenda has been championed by an international initiative called the Global Initiative for Fiscal Transparency. Now, this data in some governments is impossible to access. In some others, now it is easier 
this organization promotes standards to publish this data. And, uh, and we do know that governments have a lot of this data, they just don't publish it. So what this organization has been doing is it has been promoting PPI to show governments why it is important for them to publish their data. And if not to publish, at least to clean it up and standardize it, and then perhaps provide conditional uh, access. And uh, and this is exactly the, the kind of, uh, of impact that we're trying to get, like to show that uh, data is important, right. not just because it's data yeah. and it's out there. Here, there is a tool on how to exploit your data. Your yeah. data. So look, look at the great outcomes you can get. So you can get really bespoke policy uh, inferences. Yeah. yeah, I suppose I'm interested on kind of who else besides government could use this tool. Um, and, you know, you kind of created it with the SDGs in mind, but, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic. And, you know, is this something that, you know, further down the line you could kind of it could be used for i don't know yes so we um so we have uh done work for governments at the national level we have also created reports with uh with example cases for subnational levels so state levels uh we are working uh also with the undp on doing city level uh, analysis um, actually, the subnational cases are are very interesting because we're still talking about governments. But suppose you're talking about a, a city government that has some funds that it collects through some fines or other sources of, of revenue, but also receives then funding from the state or the federal government. Often that funding is conditioned. They cannot touch it. So what they want to find out is uh, what can they do with the little revenue that is flexible for them. So you can introduce all these type of rigidities. And then when we move away from governments, we can think of um, so how still kind of government is regulators. So you can apply this tool for uh, sectors or topics. So you would have the regulator of uh, energy or the regulator of ICTs. And, and often these entities collect a lot of indicators as well, energy ICTs. So then they can look at what, what are the areas of opportunity. And by area of opportunity, I mean this concept that is very popular in the SDG community, which is accelerators. So the idea of an accelerator is it's a topic that in, if you invest, you will produce a lot of spillover effects, positive spillovers. So you will catalyze the development of the entire agenda. And because of the interdependencies, this is not easy to, to find just out of data especially when you have the story of the inefficiencies. So regulators could find accelerators, areas of opportunity, where they could you know, promote uh, investment, uh, etc. And now moving really away from governments, we have been approached by, by private companies that uh, are interested in, in uh, adapting the methodology to their problems of uh, prioritizing certain areas of management. And they do have a data uh, which they monitor progress according to certain indicators. So we, what they tell them is, uh, I don't see why it couldn't. The only issue here would be to be careful about interpreting the model. So if they think that the story that we implement in the model about a central entity allocating budget is directly transferable to their context, then it can be quite easy. 
if it's not exactly that, perhaps if there are multiple governments or multiple central entities, I think some adjustments can be do can be done. But uh, the the general principles are there, so this I believe can be implemented in different contexts. Cool. Um, yeah, it's really interesting what you said about the um, the accelerator. The, you know, picking out those um, indicators where if you maximize that thing it ends up being good for lots of other things. And I guess in the, going back to the original, uh, you know, case study of the sustainable development goals, you know, it, yeah, if you, if, if you can, you can use this policy priority inference to find that when one particular indicator becomes much better and let's say it's, um, you know, reducing CO2 emissions, you find that actually, oh, that has lots of other, um, clearly knock-on effects for other uh, indicators related to the environmental sustainable development goal. Um, I, I, I use that example because it's probably true without having to having to use the simulation, but I'm guessing that it will find lots of more interesting ones than that. Yeah, and often you get actually counterintuitive results. So, for example, the, the UNDP has published... Uh, a method to detect accelerators. Uh, it's more of a qualitative approach, and that's fine, you know, if you don't have data. But then there are think tanks that are advising governments on accelerators through very simple heuristics. So they would put together a network of interdependencies between indicators. This could be a qualitative network, you know, through expert opinion. And then using very simple metrics of network analysis, like uh, the number of connections, of outgoing connections, that an indicator has, then with that they would determine this is an accelerator. But then this takes us back to this problem that I mentioned earlier about causation, vertical causation, because in a network you're only observing aggregate relationships between the indicators. So it's more like conditional dependencies and not really causal relationships. So how do you really know that by looking at a network and picking the nodes with most connectivity, you are producing catalysis in development. So we do a series of exercises where we compare that heuristic with the outcomes that would happen through PPI. So in PPI, we pick this, we move the, in the simulation, we move the budget to prioritize these topics. And then we, we explore all the space of different combinations in which you could prioritize different sets of topics by increasing their budget. And what you find is, for example, that Indeed, many of them have high connectivity, outgoing links, many spillovers, but some of them actually don't. And actually, many of them have apparently adverse like trade-off uh, outgoing edges, like negative weights in their links. And the reason why this happens is because uh, we are considering the, the whole story of the inefficiencies that you might invest more in certain topics, but then you encourage these guys to be more inefficient because your rule of law is bad. And then this had completely opposite effect than just grabbing the most connected node and you didn't accelerate as you wanted. So those are the kind of things that can happen when you model complex systems. You get these counterintuitive results. Cool. That that's really interesting, Omar. And we've we've had some other people on the podcast talking about things like causal inference. And I think, you know, the data science in general, in the world of big data as we have it now, that the these kinds of techniques are just going to be 
more and more important um, to make decisions. Um, but uh, I think I think we'll we'll start to wrap up now because we've we've been talking to you for quite a long time. Um, and uh, and I think um, before we let you go, I'm just going to uh, go for a bit of a bonus question that's uh, a bit of a tangent. But I think um, yeah, so because you're someone who works on something that's related to sustainable development goals. Um, I assume that you have a relatively broad outlook on sort of global development, um, how, how things are going with the world. Um, given what you know, uh, the, the bonus question is, how do you see the world in 2100? And specifically, is it a better world to live in or a worse world than we have currently? Uh, well, so I actually am currently doing some uh, outlook analysis on, on where are we going to be in some years so i, oh, I think okay. i can uh, <laughs> inform my opinion with some preliminary findings and the first thing is obviously we're yeah, not going to be where we want the sdgs everybody knows everybody acknowledge they are too ambitious um so starting today 2020 in 10 years they're 2030 the sgds though anyway so that's, no. that's not are there sgds for um 2100 as well no not that i know uh i I think that that's a bit extreme but um but i think uh so just for my preliminary analysis uh we're gonna need at least like the most developed nations will need on average at least 10 more years to get there the least developed will need 120 30 years uh by 2030 at least it's not that bad by 2030, we will probably have achieved 50 to 60% of progress towards the goals. Um, if all this is assuming there is no COVID. Okay. So now, now with COVID, the situation <laughs> obviously worsens and, and there are two angles to this. One is uh, many countries are not going to be able to spend as they have been doing. And that's very worrying, especially for regions like uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, because they are very sensitive to shrinkages in the budget. So the short-term solutions uh, are very uh, important for them. For the West, probably it's not that bad because they are already in the frontier of technology and certain indicators, so they can, they're not going to lose that much. But then, so that's just on the expenditure side. Then you have what what would be the initial conditions starting 2020 on, or 2021 that is the indicators so right now the indicators that we have are the ones reported from last year before covid so next year we're going to find out how much indicators fail fell so mexico for example is expected to have 5 to 10 million new people living under the poverty line that's a huge drop and like that, there's going to be many countries uh, with init- with widened gaps between the indicator and the goals. So to the numbers that I just told you, just add, uh, I think, several more years, uh, unfortunately. So we're not looking at a very optimistic scenario by 2030 and then by 2100. Uh, I-, I wouldn't dare to go that far, actually. Something to clarify here is that PPI is not a long-term forecast tool. It is a short-term tool. Right, right. Uh, Because it assumes that certain structural aspects like technology, the infrastructure, they remain the same when we do our prospective analysis. Mm-hmm. So we we try to avoid saying things like, uh, you know, in 100 years, uh, 
you're going to be emitting this amount of carbon, and this is my confidence interval. Uh, we cannot do that. Uh, PPI is not designed to do that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I think that's a that's a very diplomatic answer as well. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Thanks for joining us, Omar. Um, before we let you go, um, where can people find your work? Uh, do you have social media that people can follow? Yes, of course. So the I, I only use uh, Twitter, which is uh, at uh, Guerrero, which uh, probably I need to spell out G U E R E R O low dash O A. So that's my Twitter handle. And most of the information about PPI you can find it in uh, in the in my website, which is uh, ogre dot com slash PPI. So it's my surname without the last O, ogre.com slash PPI. And there you will find the, the reports that have been published with the UN, with the UNDP, uh, academic papers, uh, even explainer videos, uh, both in English and Spanish. Uh, I'm hoping to translate into a couple more languages soon. And uh, as we grow this agenda, we are you know, continuously posting things there uh and then obviously anyone interested can contact uh, any of us gonzalo or, or me directly and we'll be happy to to engage in, in discussions and conversations perfect all right thanks very much again for going on the podcast Oma. thank you Ed and joe thank you very much <laughs> if you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show a guest recommendation or a burning question email podcast at cheering.ac.uk The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstrey, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jamin Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com. Mm-hmm.